everyone, and welcome back to another Pink Bike Podcast. This one is episode 93, and I'm Mike Levy, your usual host for these things, and someone who, I have to admit, certainly loses some motivation to ride my bike sometimes. And I know that's not the cool thing to admit. We're all supposed to be hardcore mountain bikers crushing it year-round, no matter the weather or mindset. But that's not my reality sometimes, and you know, it might not be yours either sometimes. So, First off, you're going to need to park the broski ride-or-die attitude at the door for this episode because we're going to try to be honest about this. Like, we all love riding our bikes, but sometimes life circumstances mean that it isn't that simple. And sometimes you might need the extra motivation to get out on your bike, or maybe you're in need of something else. We're going to get to that chat in a few minutes, but first, Casimir, I need to ask you a terribly corny question who inspires you besides me? Do you have somebody that you you look to for motivation when you need it, whether it's for riding or maybe something else? I'm going to be honest, Kaz, I don't picture you needing motivation. I don't really look to a person to motivate me to ride. Like, I mean, there is a life-size poster of you on the wall that I always look at that helps a little yes. bit. But other than that... What am I wearing like, in that poster? Just spandex. It's, it's tasteful. Oh, uh, just a princess, a princess layer <laughs> outfit, wasn't it? Like, you know, when she's... <laughs> That's if you flip lane. it over. It's a two-sided poster. It's very special. <laughs> uh, <laughs> With the little hair buns. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, I don't really look towards, like, a person to motivate me. I mean, it does help. I have a couple of friends that'll go out in any type of weather, any condition. So that does help if they, you know, you get a text, like, I'm going riding. You're like, all right, I guess I'm going riding, too. So that does help. Yeah. But, Kaz, you never, you never like... You never put on the sword and like turn it up to 11 or like whatever loud music you're listening to and like get pumped and like, yeah, let's go get after it. Is that not you? That's not really me. I kind of have this. I mean, people that listen probably know that pretty monotone and like pretty even keeled. And that kind of translates to my whole life. I just like, I don't know, I'm a pretty neutral person. I think that's just how my brain works. But so, yeah, I'm usually naturally fairly motivated. And I I mean, we'll get into it later, but I don't get burned out that often. Like I just kind of. I've been riding for what, like 26 years now or something crazy. And I'm still like just as excited to go riding. So it's kind of weird. I keep thinking it'll wear off, but it hasn't. So yeah, it might be an addiction. You are a metronome of consistency, Kaz. Just, just, like, just going, going and going. Doc. Uh-huh. Can I just come in here? Because Kaz, can you tell people briefly about your career as a paper boy? <laughs> yeah, I had a good career. <laughs> you, had a good, you had a good run. Oh yeah, tell him just the bare bones. Kaz just gets on with it. There's a reason for it. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? <laughs> this is the the award that I mentioned when I was paper boy of the year in 1994. Best paper boy in Connecticut. Yeah, Best I still have the trophy. That's not an easy yeah. job, Kaz, is it? No, I know. So I was a paper boy. What would, you, what would your day consist of? So I started when I was 12 years old. Or so. I was in fourth grade, and I think I read a book about someone was a paper boy. And I was like, oh, I want to do that. I need some money. And so it turns out you can be a paper boy when you're like 12. So I would, the papers would come at 5 in the morning. I'd wake up at 5, and they have to all be delivered by like 6 or 6.30. There's like a deadline apparently, which – and I adhered to that deadline. Like I thought like really bad things would happen if I didn't get them delivered by six. But like looking back, nothing would have happened probably. Like whatever, it's six o'clock. Like who's waking up that early? <laughs> but I really thought that was serious. So yeah, I'd wake up every day and I did it for eight years from fourth grade until 12th wow. grade, seven days a week, rain or shine. I was like seven, the mailman. Seven days a week, <laughs> 5 a.m. Yeah. in Connecticut in the winter yeah. delivering uh-huh. newspapers. Yeah, on my bike. And like, so the... The weekdays, I could just have like the normal paper boy sack and you just like toss them up the houses. Probably had, like 
I think it was like 30 or 40 houses. Sometimes more if you like took on someone else's route, if you're like substituting and took their route for a bit. Yeah. But then on the weekends, there's like those giant Sunday papers. So I had a thing. It was the Cannondale Bugger, which I don't think they call it that name anymore. But the thing is like a plastic yeah. tow behind trailer. And that would attach to one of the bike, first. And I'd load up. Yeah. And I'd load it up with all the newspapers and just like grunt and grind. And because no, Sunday papers are giant, like they're huge. And then eventually <laughs> I could drive when I was in high school. But yeah. So yeah, I've been motivated to do stuff for a long time. You know how sometimes you meet some people that have seen some shit in their life. They just have like this like calmness about them. I'm not saying that delivering newspapers <laughs> yeah, I don't think in the winter in Connecticut. No, 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 no. It's not it's the hard, same but thing. It but, yeah. <laughs> but Kaz, like I think this is a big part of how you are today. Like you just you just go out, you do the ride, you know, year round. And I feel like that probably comes from some of that history that you were talking about, eh? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it helped, and it just kind of gets you used to like doing that. And yeah, I mean, I've always been pretty good at suffering, and so I guess that's my yeah early entry into suffering. We've also got Sarah Moore here, who is usually, as far as I know, a pretty positive person. But Sarah, do you ever find yourself being burned out or needing some extra motivation to go for a bike ride? Absolutely. Uh, I feel like more and more I've become a fair weather cyclist, and it yeah. just. Once I'm out in the rain, I enjoy it, but it just takes a lot more motivation for me to get excited to go out riding in the rain. It's been really, really wet here, so I've been yeah. riding a little less than usual. All right, we've also got Henry Quinney here today on the show. Henry, who inspires you? What do you do when you got to get pumped up? Um, you know, I think I think because I'm someone, I, well, let's face it, I talk a lot. I'm someone that's quite, I externalize a lot, and I don't really... I think maybe it's because I recognise it myself, but those kind of people don't really inspire me. It's the stoic people who just quietly get it done that I find. That's the stuff that I find far more inspiring than someone who's trying to, trying to be outwardly inspirational. There was this guy who read this article on the BBC recently, and he was in the UK, I think he's from Scotland, and he was on a night out when he was younger, and he got really badly beaten up, and he decided to leave the UK because he just hated it that much, and I, I can't sympathise with that at all, obviously. And, uh, <laughs> but he went to Canada, and one day he just decided to start walking, and he walked literally like 20,000 miles over the years, and he got back to the UK, and he hadn't had any contact with home, right? And um, and all, and his parents had died, and he was so stricken by grief, he found the most isolated lock in Scotland, and he's been living there by himself for like 30 years. And he has no electricity, and he just does his own thing, and he goes fishing once a day, and I thought that was like deeply inspiring. I was like, this guy, he doesn't need anyone. He doesn't need anyone to validate him. He just does his own thing. And I thought that was absolutely amazing. Okay, so let's get into the news. And we can start with the biggest news of the week, the biggest wheel news, that is. So there are quite a few companies experimenting with bigger wheels, including Trek, who we had on the podcast last year. But 36 Felici is the first company to come out with a full carbon 36er mountain bike. It has bright racing shocks, rigid fork, and carbon wheels from Browse Components. But the brand has been struggling to find appropriate tires for the bike, and the best models that they've found are actually designed for unicycles. In total, the bike weight comes to 12 kilograms or 26.5 pounds, which is about 3 kilograms or 6 pounds more than the lightest carbon fiber hardtails on the market. 36 Polici will be hoping that the advantages of a 36-inch wheel that include more stability, more rollover, will overrule the weight costs when they begin selling this bike next year. So what do you guys think? I feel like it was seven years ago, at least, where we saw those bikes with 36-inch wheels at uh, Interbike one year. Do you remember that, yep. maybe? We're in Vegas. Oh, they've been around forever. Yeah, yeah there's always yeah. somebody. This one just happens to be made of carbon. It's interesting. I'd ride it. 
Have you ridden yeah. anything with larger wheels than 29ers? Well, I've ridden an actually actual penny farthing, so that has pretty oh, big I wheels. Can't. I think that's like 48 <laughs> inches or something. I don't really know how tall that front wheel is. Hey, Kaz, in five years, what do you think the chances are of a company like Trek or Specialized or somebody like that, a major brand offering a 36er? Slim to none. Really? Yeah. I see. I would say it's higher than 50%. How big, have you seen how big 36-inch wheels are? They're yeah, very, pretty... very big. Yeah. Like, they're goofy. If you see it, how... it's like, that's... I feel so, like, like they're seven inches bigger than a 29er. Yeah, which is a lot. Like, he, he wouldn't even yeah. fit in your bike this rack, bike I don't This bike does think. look really <laughs> funny. Yeah. Yeah. The proportions. They bike I mean, racks it's, for, it's almost... for fat bikes. They can adapt for this as well. You yeah, know? it's true. I can see for, like, NBA players and, like, very tall people, but otherwise, I don't feel like... I think it's a very niche market, but... Yeah, I mean, it's cool it exists. What about a 32er? Maybe. I mean, I'm not going to say never, but I feel like there is, I think humans still yeah. have to be able to ride these things. You can make them as big as you want, but it still has to, like, you have to be able to stand over the frame. People already talk about getting your butt buzzed on, like, 29-inch wheels. I think the 36 is going to be a lot closer. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if something smaller but bigger than a 29 came out. I mean, that's just how the industry works. Like, it's, it just is. Yeah, maybe. For better or worse. Yeah. I'm not convinced, but we'll see. Like I said that about other wheel sizes, but I feel like 36 is pretty huge and crazy. It's hard to imagine what that would be like. If you could somehow make a full suspension enduro 36-inch wheel bike, I think that'd be ridiculous. We, maybe Pink Bike should make one, and we could test it and see what happens. I mean, the Grim, Grim Donut's Donut. supposed to be from maybe. the future. Its wheels are probably a little too small. It needs bigger ones next year. Okay, so let's go back to the 29er because it doesn't sound like it's going the way of 26-inch wheels anytime soon. Uh, we've got the Orange Stage 6 Evo. Uh, it uses a single pivot layout, and the brand says it is their new go-to aggressive trail bike with 140 millimeters of rear travel paired with 150 millimeter fork. As for geometry, it has a 64-degree head tube angle, 76-degree seat tube angle, and 467-millimeter chainstays. Kaz, I know you've said on another podcast that you really like long chainstays, but how about 467 millimeter chainstays? That's impressive. I don't think I can think, I can't think of any non e-bikes that have chainstays that long. So, uh, Orange has made something special. I mean, granted the previous version of the stage six, I think it had really long chainstays too, but I'm interested to try this bike because I was looking at the geo chart and the medium has the same length chainstays as the reach. Or it's pretty close. It's like 467 reach and 467 chainstays. So in my mind, that just seems interesting. We'll see. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> we'll get one of these in. Try. The same reach as chainstays. <laughs> it's like a triangle. Yeah, it's the Illuminati thing. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's easy to interesting. Draw. <laughs> yeah, it seems really long, but maybe it's awesome. As for our electrified news this week, we've got a new EMTV in the works from none other than nine-time MotoGP winner Valentino Rossi, as well as a prototype aluminum EMTV from Kodak Bikes. In addition, Giant has released the 2022 Transex Advanced E Plus that has 29-inch wheels, carbon frame, and 140 millimeters of rear travel. It uses Yamaha's new Sync Drive Pro Motor, which is lighter and smaller than the previous version, and it now delivers 85 newton meters of torque, which is five newton meters more than before. Do you guys feel like we've had more EMTV articles on the site this week than non-EMTV articles? Do you think there's a reason for that? Well, yeah, I think we do have had a lot of EMTV cover coverage, but People just got to stop buying them. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, what can we do? Like, people are like, we oh, have God. to cover them. 
Yeah, can you we have to cover stop e-bikes? talking so much about e-bikes? And it's like, listen, I don't want them to play Imagine Dragons on the fucking radio. But if, if people keep buying it, they're going to put it on the radio. <laughs> yeah. Like, ah! <laughs> Did you just equate e-bikes to Imagine Dragons? I mean, that's probably unfair on e-bikes, to be fair. Because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine Dragons are so much worse. But um, <laughs> at what point do we... Because we, we've got responsibility, I think, all news sites do to report the news it's the same thing as like race coverage right people don't want to see spoilers and i'm really sorry if you get your race spoiled but at the same time we've got an obligation to post the results and if a lot of people are releasing e-bikes and they're all selling out i don't like e-bikes i'm I'm not saying that but i don't know what to do yeah and also i think we're seeing companies that didn't have e-bikes before they're like well we need an e-bike and so they make one and then it's new and it's news so we cover it but um yeah we'll see how it goes in the future but i think this this year has definitely been the year that more and more companies join in the e-bike thing. So that's why, and they're all coming out right now. It happens. So that's why it's news, but there's more regular bikes coming out soon. You don't just have e-bikes in your garage right now. I do have a lot of e-bikes right now, but I also have regular bikes too. (laughs) You're the problem, Kaz. You proud of yourself. So if you're looking to get power assistance without a battery or motor, maybe this is for Henry since, you know, you just said you don't like EMTVs. The super wheel claims that it's possible with a wheel that supposedly harnesses vertical movement caused by a rider's weight and turns it into forward motion. We wrote about the super wheel for the first time about a year ago, but now the design has moved forward and super wheel has shown more prototypes online. The latest prototype looks to have nine rather than eight springs and it claims to give more assistance than the last version. So did you guys take a look at this? Is somebody going to give this a go? Yeah, I think Levy's on the list. Yep, it's uh, what? signed up for <laughs> Super Wheels. <laughs> Super Wheels coming your way. They only, I think they have a 26-inch version and then like a road bike version. So we might have to, uh, the Brody 8-Ball would look pretty good with the Super Wheel. I'm, I just want to know, how does it propel you forward without the motor again? Can you just quickly uh, explain magic. that? Magic. It's mostly magic and a lot of science, too. This, this is a new kind of science that um, goes against all laws of physics. So, Is this a perpetual motion machine? It is. They've cracked the code. Yep. It's kind of like a trampoline mixed with like a spring bed, if you look at it, you know? Like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, everybody should read Alicia's article. It's just, she has just the right amount of uh, skepticism in there. And there's some great old pictures of like a bike from... An old German bike, there's spring wheels. So, yeah, it's interesting and also not a real thing. Well, it's a real thing, but we'll, maybe we'll get one in for testing still. It's different. <laughs> it's different. <laughs> strong I think claims. We should definitely get Levy on it. Yeah. In other news, Schwalbe is setting their sights on manufacturing their tires exclusively from recycled rubber in the future. Supported by the German Federal Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy, they're collaborating on a research project that focuses on developing a sustainable recycling system for used bicycle tires. Currently, unwanted tires are incinerated or buried in landfills, and the goal of collaborating partners is to change this to a closed-loop economic system by recovering the raw materials. Pinkbikecometer86 said that they recently watched a documentary about tires, and near the beginning of the documentary, the question, what is a product that is discarded when it's only 5% worn, was asked, and the answer was, of course, tires. So I was wondering, like, how long do you guys ride tires before you move on and also how long before you notice that they don't have that same grip you know those little hairs from the molds Mm -hmm. on the tires when those hairs fall off that's when i take the tire off and i just (laughs) i throw it into the river by my house (laughs) yeah that's what everybody does right no (laughs) no that's i'm just joking i feel like it's hard not to look at this stuff so okay first off my uninformed opinion here of course 
But it's hard not to look at this stuff and just think marketing and tax breaks, to be honest with you. You know, I think so much, I'm sorry, this is uneducated opinion coming in hot. The the best kind. (laughs) But it feels like recycling anything, whilst very good and important, is just a way to put the the onus on the consumer, not an actually industry making their business more efficient or less rampant. It's basically a way to enable unregulated consumerism, to me, and as oh, but what you can do, like to offset one transatlantic return flight, you'd have to do every single bit of recycling for five years. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not saying it's not going to help. But this idea that we can get our way out of it with just recycling, and it puts the onus on the end consumer, which we are sadly, without going too into it, we're, we're in this system. This is the system we live in, and it's hard not to consume too much plastic and all this crap because it comes on everything. And me recycling my one tire that I go through is is helping probably but also like is it <laughs> yeah but if they're, yeah. but if but if schwalbe is manufacturing their tires from their recycled rubber i think that's a bigger story here yeah like but, it, it's good to recycle obviously but if they're committing to make all their tires from recycled rubber that's pretty good yeah but do you think the chief inefficiency coming from tire manufacturing is the lack of tires being recycled Oh, no, no, I mean, I'm sure that, like, yeah. shipping them in containers across the ocean and yeah. things isn't oh, great either. And even the manufacturing so of tires. But, like, at the end of the day, I don't know. I think even small steps like this are fine. Even if, you know, if, if you want to think they're for tax breaks or marketing, I think it's a good step. Like, But they should be for tax breaks. That's how we should be doing it. Like, that's exactly the correct type of motivation, basically, because it's the type of motivation that companies respond to. Mm-hmm. The fact that we're all in existential threat and we're all on a planet that's dying actually doesn't really matter to them. Not in it's actually got to be, like... I was talk. I was hyperbolizing, but yeah. yeah. I mean, the aliens are going to come down and beam us out of here, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah, we'll be fine. But, but like, the thing that people respond to is money. You know, tax breaks that will inspire people. The thought of you know people not throwing their tire into the estuary, sadly, is not gonna. It's not gonna actually do anything. But I think it's also like if I recycle one cardboard box it doesn't make a difference but if like all these companies are making their cardboard boxes differently and recycling all the tires then if it's at the company level it can start to make more of a difference at least that's the way i like yeah to, i, I like to think of right. it as but isn't it fun to be very doom and gloom <laughs> yeah, like a little bit of positivity just a hint yeah <laughs> well and also like honestly. if we're all you know against these because if we say that they're greenwashing then it doesn't really incentivize all these companies to become cleaner if every time they try to do something we're like ah just greenwashing it i mean i think the thing with the environment is to the thing that gives me a great deal of solace is to realize the world isn't ending that humans time on the world is ending nature will continue you know we're just we're so narcissistic oh my god the world's ending it's like no (laughs) we're ending (laughs) but sorry anyway back to bikes this week's pink fake podcast is presented by hammerhead to be the best requires more than strength and heart It requires intelligence, anticipation, and the ability to see what others can't. The Hammerhead Karoo 2 is a next-generation cycling computer that brings the power of advanced GPS navigation and intuitive software right to your handlebars. Hammerhead's new exclusive Climber feature lets you visualize and prepare for upcoming gradient changes in real time. For a limited time, buy a Karoo 2 at hammerhead.io slash tradein and get up to $170 when you trade in your current cycling computer. All right, we've got two questions today. The first one is from Racer Facer, and last week's show was about 
how much bike weight matters and even if it matters at all, what sort of effect it has on riding. And his comment is about that. He says, if heavier components, he uses examples such as tires and a fork, etc., give you more confidence to pick up some speed on the downhills at a minimal uphill cost, why not use them? But he says, there are a lot of places where weight is added that does not add to noticeable downhill performance. For me, one thing that comes to mind sometimes is piggyback shocks. People see piggyback shocks and it's easy to assume that the bike is just better on the descent, but all it means is that there's more oil in the shock. So it it will be better on a longer descent, more consistent, but it doesn't mean that the bike is a better descender. You know, I think obviously for when you're riding aggressive, having heavy, deeply treaded tires is a game changer. But often I think, like I've seen people on UK trail centers with like double down casing ASA guys. And I'm like, you probably actually have more grip because actually the, the, the stack's too high on the knobs. You know, you'd actually have more grip on that smooth surface to run like an XC tire. Yeah, well, we do we do talk about tires really affecting how a bike performs and putting a big monster tire on a bike if you don't have the terrain is definitely one way to make it slower, actually, as well, too. Wait so that is what, another one. What about the, like, 738? They don't really... They're good. Obviously, they are amazing. But I think for most people, like a Lyrical 36, absolutely ample in pretty much every category. I have no comment. You know how yeah. I feel about this. But I would say that if this person's asking about downhill performance, like if you were by a pure metric of like stiffness and things those forks are stiffer which in a lot of people's mind is going to be better are you going but, faster but oh they are and they are be. amazing forks like both the 30 yeah. and the zeb are fantastic it's not to decry that but i just think it's the same thing it's like the, the things that draws you out right the piggyback shock and the big enduro fork yeah it's probably not going to make you your time isn't going to drastically change on that descent if you're on a 36 versus a, a 38 like but yeah yeah i don't know it's, it's an not interesting like question. drastically better tires and way better brakes, you know? All right. Our next question is from Vapidoscar, a.k.a. Vapid Oscar. He wants to know how to get more performance out of his cable disc brakes. I'm going to paraphrase here because he wrote a lot. But basically, he built up a old school 26-inch hardtail, and it's got older, avid BB-5 cable disc brakes on it. And they're not working all that well. Henry, how do you make them work better? It's hard. Cable disc brakes can sometimes hmm, be somewhat underpowered especially when they've just got the one side that moves i don't know i mean i think that for me the biggest thing to increase braking performance is rotor size so even if you're not having that much purchase in terms of the pad contact having a bigger rotor might help Um, but setup's going to be key right and actually maybe something as small as you know how you have your your lever set up on the bar because you're looking for a real mechanical advantage having even something as trivial as having like your fingers gripping towards the end of the lever will actually give you more power at the caliper but there's so many little things that oh yeah getting getting the right cable tension of course is is super important because it's going to change when it engages yeah yeah actually you touched on a thing there with the cable tension when when you clamp that brake cable down at the caliper vapid oscar definitely don't rotate that actuation arm up too far you're going to lose power by doing that. And the other thing to keep in mind too, different brake levers, like a traditional brake lever that pulls a cable, sometimes depending on where the pivot point is and where the cable attaches to the lever blade, they actually have a different leverage ratio, like a different pull. That's why the old Avid uh, cable brake levers, they had a dial that you could turn and it actually moved the anchor point of the cable up and down or in and out on the lever to change that ratio so brake pads rotor and then look at the levers you're using and make sure they're set up correctly 
and then look at the fixed pad as well like the space between that and the rotor is important and sometimes if it's if it's if that pad is worn down or if it's out too far when the rotor when it's not putting enough force on the rotor so like you advance that fixed pad as close as you can without it rubbing and then adjust the other side all right that brings us to our talk about motivation and avoiding burnout i think we can all agree that no matter what type of riding you do mountain biking is pretty fucking awesome and if you're anything like me i'm willing to bet that you might have had some of the best times of your life while riding a mountain bike maybe it was due to the company that you had the freedom the nature Pushing yourself to do new things or go faster, all those cliches apply, and it's why mountain biking is its amazing. It's why you're here right now listening to this podcast, and to make it even better, it's all human-powered, which, at least for me, it certainly adds another level to mountain biking. It's an incredible sport. No joke, I have like goosebumps even talking about how amazing it is and what it's given me. It's pretty cool, but at the same time, sometimes that's just not enough. Sometimes the feeling isn't there. Henry Quinney, you're a guy who clearly loves to ride his bike a metric shit ton. I've seen you doing all sorts of massive days, big rides, regardless of the weather or anything else. But has there ever been a time in your life where it hasn't been like that? When you've, when you haven't wanted anything to do with bikes, when you've been burnt out on it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think. Um, uh, how much should I say? This is a good, good thing. You know, when I. This is going to sound a bit maybe needlessly self-referential, but there was a time before I started working in like mountain biking media, right? And, um, you know, when I started riding bikes as an adult and I started like doing like bigger distance rides, where it was a time where I was obsessed with doing bigger rides, it sounds a bit silly, but I think it was one of the first times where I felt, I think so I was quite young as well, in my early 20s. And I think it was one of the first times that I f- felt really validated people would come up to me and be like oh my god you're doing crazy stuff oh you know and it was really validating maybe too much so and then I went to this period of basically doing these massive rides all the time and uh, and people would say like oh you know that's cool or whatever and and it basically I, I think I sort of I kind of gave my riding away a bit and then when I started working in mountain biking media I thought erroneously that it was really going to suit me people kind of knowing who I was and knowing about my riding and when I started working on like it, this, so we, we often don't name it by name, but I, so I used to work for GMBN, right? Which is an amazing company. They helped me out loads. They gave me a massive leg up in the industry and they're all good buggers, you know? Um, but I thought being known was going to make me really happy and it did entirely the opposite. And um, and honestly, I felt like I, I gave away my passion. I felt because I was suddenly doing it for other people and for other things. And, um, and when I decided to leave the UK, because I was living in a place of, but the local riding wasn't particularly good either. And it made me really sad. Like, honestly, like I didn't ride for maybe like six months and I moved to Portugal and, um, and I had this really weird process of, it was like, I was deconstructing like years of how I was motivated to ride bikes. And a great part of it was I'd, I was constantly fueled off external points of reference for to ha- how to feel good about myself they're going to think I'm cool. I'm going to put this ride on Strava. Bah, 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 bah. I'm going to do this. And so I deleted my Instagram and I deleted my, I basically, and I'm sorry if any, I can't imagine they did, but if anyone ever followed me on Strava, because I had to go through and individually delete followers because you can't do mm-hmm. it like wholesale. And, um, and I didn't want to lose all my stats because I'm just, I still enjoy that part of it, even if it's just for me. And I had this really weird process of this reclamation of my own riding. And I went to Portugal and I just rode bikes every day 
and I absolutely it was one of those liberating experiences I've ever had in my life and it was this weird it was sort of like this like it sounds a bit silly but it was like this emotional experience Mm -hmm. because I'd completely lost I'd lost it where I rode and I was so obsessed with like you know the problem is when you get when you rely on other people to tell you the thing you're doing is cool or whatever or good it you cheapen it and you just give it away and, and you get into a, like a validation feedback loop where you need to do something good to give yourself the same feeling at this that and the other and it was only by completely stepping away from that that i learned to love riding bikes again because there was a time where i absolutely hated it and i it made me so anxious because uh, you know sorry to go off on a massive tangent but bike riding had been this the central tenant and, and the thing that my life pivoted around for like a decade and suddenly i would sit at home and i I would get upset because I'd ride a bike for half an hour and I'd get so anxious I'd have to go home and mm-hmm. I'd be out in the woods and I'd be absolutely hating riding bikes and people would sort of kind of maybe sometimes, you know, within the very niche world of mountain biking, which is not many people do it. And in that incredible niche, there's the people that might watch mountain biking videos on YouTube. And within that incredible niche, there's people that lived in the same area. But people would recognise me and they only wanted to say nice things, but I was going through such an existential problem with mountain biking that it really put me off riding because I didn't want to be recognised as someone that wasn't enjoying it. I didn't want to seem ungrateful. And that that made it a problem in itself. So then I didn't want to be seen on a bike at the Forest of Dean. And so I wouldn't go. And mm-hmm. it, it did this huge thing to me. It did an absolute number on me. And um, and now like it's, you know, now I do the occasional video, but largely my, largely, no, I'm in Canada. No one, no, one, no one gives a fuck who I am and it's brilliant. And no one knows me and I just do my own thing. And I abs- I've completely reclaimed it. And, Having that four months in Portugal, where I was just living alone, riding every day, eating fish fingers, and playing Age of Empires in my pants. It it was like a it was like a retreat for my soul, and it gave me a lot back. But that's a bit of a tangent. So yeah, there have been times. Deleting social media, you mentioned. How big of a factor was that? Do it. Get rid of it. Social media isn't there to make your life better. It is there because it's advantageous to other people. Mm-hmm. It was ruining my life, and also it's like there's a great Bob Dylan phrase, you know privacy is something that is very easy to give away very hard to take back we're this first generation where people like 200 years ago you only exist in these small communities and now we exist in these really big ones being known isn't good i don't think it's good for the soul man i think having a little people know you as possible except for those in your community and except for those that you actually care about like i i really love it when someone comes up to me and they might say something like oh you did something on pink bike maybe from your jambian days and i really like that that's very nice and i i who wouldn't want that it's a lovely thing however i totally understand why britney spears shaved her head i totally get it man absolutely it makes total sense and and i think that if you can learn to validate yourself and then do the social media stuff that's fine but if you did like i did like i said erroneously put too much stock in it it's 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 not good we live in a place where the riding is, I mean, I don't need to tell anybody listening. We live in the Sea to Sky Quarter. The riding is amazing in the Pacific Northwest. That's great. But we have a ton of people around us who are amazing riders as well. It's just so easy to go on Instagram or whatever. And you just see these people doing like these, you know, 120 kilometer days where they climb 10,000 feet and they're just look like happy the whole time. Or they're out there riding that gnarly rock that, you know, you haven't ridden yet. And I know... Like me personally, I think just over this last year, I've realized that I think it would be easy to see that stuff and think that it's inspirational. 
but it doesn't work like that for me. Like I see that stuff and I just feel, I feel like I should be out there doing it. And when I'm not, then I feel kind of bad. I'm like, fuck, I'm not like, I didn't do a 120 kilometer ride today. I was only on my bike for an hour and a half. I'm a weak piece of shit. Yeah. I mean, there isn't many things that I, when I started presenting on, on the YouTube stuff, I was really bad. Okay. I mean, I was really bad at presenting and, um, because I've never done it before and that happens. You know, I'm not saying I'm any good now. Shit, I've still got a long way to go. You're pretty good. You're pretty good. Anyway. I'm a, dude, I fucking, honestly, I look back at every video I make and I'm so annoyed at myself because I always do something wrong. But yeah. that's besides the That's point. the process though. That's the process, man. But the only yeah. video that I look back and makes me really uncomfortable is I did a video where I did an Everest in the Forest of Dean, right? And it was a hard day on a bike. And I went out, you know, I, I bloody did it and I was really stoked at the time. But you know what, man? Like, riding bikes is sacred. And I'm there, like, plugging myself in this yeah. nauseating, self, self-congratulatory self tone. It, is, it makes me cringe, and I'm really embarrassed by it, actually. I, it's the one video that yeah. I look back, and I think that's not down to... There are lots of videos that I've made that are bad because I'm bad. But that's one of the few videos that makes me cringe because the content is so... Oh, it makes me... It's, like, sickening. It's, like, nauseating. It's horrible. Yeah, content aside, too, like, regardless of whether the video was good or not... On the social media side of things, nobody cares. I think that's also been a, a realization. Like, it's all throwaway stuff that it just disappears in 10 seconds. And here I am. I look at it, and I see that so-and-so went out and did this on their bike. And I like it affects me, and I don't realize that it just disappears in 10 seconds. Like, it doesn't matter. But it definitely yeah. does affect me, for sure. Dude, well, this the, the one saving grace of this media quandary that we've got ourselves in be it social media or the X factor or America's got talent is it's auto cannibalistic and it, it whatever's out there eats itself, you know, and it is replaced by something just, I mean, I, th- I think cause we, we all, we all write stuff from mountain bike website, right. And it's absolutely sick, but I love my job. And the cool thing is actually, if ever you can write something or make something, which isn't merely contributing to the noise, Yes, actually real and something that can actually be a point of reference for someone whether it's buying a new bike or or whatever not just not just self-promotion and it's hard because it's hard to you know we exist on the inside to go off on a massive tangent here and mike and fucking sarah can hardly get a word in i'm sorry <laughs> but you know you're constantly trying to make stuff that is just valid not necessarily good and like I, I don't care whether people think what I do is good or not anymore. I used to. I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit that. But now if, if I enjoyed writing it and my mom likes it and Brian thinks it's okay, then I don't give a fuck. Like, who cares? <laughs> and, but it's hard because you're constantly trying to understand that the nature of the internet's really fickle, right? And it's the same with riding bikes. People telling you you're amazing on Instagram ain't going to butt the parsnips. It's just, it's just not going to make you happy. Yeah, but you feel like you feel like it's it's just short. The reason it's so effective is because of the short-term dopamine rush, and um, and I know that a lot of people probably listen to this thinking like, how can someone be so wrapped up in all the bullshit? And I, but I think a lot of people are, and I certainly know I was, and I'm still on a journey with it. I'm still kind of trying to deconstruct how to own my riding as much as possible. But I'm sorry if someone's most people have got not a clue what I'm talking about, and they just think I'm a lemon. And I'm sorry. Maybe we should move on. <laughs> hey, Kaz. What is the longest period of time you've spent off the bike that was optional, not mandatory, not for weather, not for injury? What's the longest you've gone without riding? 
uh, was not injury related. It's probably only a few days, yeah. I'd say. So I know we we talked about that paper route thing earlier, and maybe that is a, a, a factor in this as well. But how do you keep that consistency, Kaz? Like, are you doing different things? Do you have a strategy, or are you just doing what you want to do? Yeah, I kind of do what I want to do, but it's kind of it's 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 evolved over the years. And I think that one thing that helps me is to mix it up. Like there were times um, where I just really wanted to become better at you know, super gnarly trails. So I was really focused. There's a few trails around here where I wanted to get every single move perfect, you know? So I would, I would obsess about them. I'd go to sleep thinking about this trail. Like it was almost like a, I used to climb a lot. So it almost reminded me of like a bouldering problem or a climbing route where you're trying to imagine every single move individually, and then you can piece it all together. So I would just get so obsessed with this, this trail and just like literally falling asleep. I could picture it in my head, like trying to visualize it. And, but then I realized I couldn't do that every day, like trying to piece together this gnarly trail every single day wasn't healthy for me um just it was just like too much so then i just started mixing in some more chill rides you know this was back when it was like everyone just all free ride everything all downhill everything but then just putting in some regular rides just where you're not stressed and you can just kind of some casual trails helps a lot and i think i've carried that that process forward now where now i'm not i'm still not out there like trying to ride the gnarliest stuff but if i do have a week where i'm riding a bunch of gnarly trails i'll toss in a more like cross country ride or just a chill ride on trails that I could ride blindfolded basically. So I think that helps just keep it fresh. I also, even though I have routes that I regularly go to, I also like to mix it up a lot. Like I don't like to ride the same trail every single day at the same time like that. Some people that works great for them cause that's a routine. But for me, I like to be like, Oh, I haven't ridden this in a while. I'm going to go over there and see what that's like, or just go exploring. So I think just enough variation helps a lot. Have you ever hated bikes, Kaz? No, I haven't ever hated bikes. Like I did used to, when I lived in Colorado, I'd have more like two seasons where I'd have bike season and ski season. And I think that was pretty helpful. Like it's helpful to just be able to put the bikes away. And then, and that's when I really couldn't ride because there's snow and it was freezing cold and you might as well go skiing then. So I think that was kind of nice. But then when I moved to Washington and in, in, in Washington, you can ride year round here, but maybe there's like three weeks out of the year where it's not ideal. So it kind of changed where my priorities were a bit so like i don't consider myself as much of a skier now i'm more of a biker where i used to be a skier that biked so but i think this is a fascinating insight into the workings of pink bike because for those that don't know basically like sarah and kaz do all the work and me and lev leave you basically <laughs> dead weight like, they just get on they do it and we'll be like oh no I've got this checkout article. I've only been writing it for two months. Uh, do you think it's good to go? <laughs> like, absolutely dragging our feet. These guys basically carry us all the way through. <laughs> yeah. Kaz, did your broken back affect your motivation at all? So if those are people that don't know, I think it was three years ago, Yeah, Kaz, three, three years ago. Yeah. You broke your back? Mm-hmm. It was pretty serious. You had surgery. You're in the hospital. You're in, another, you're in Canada, another country when it happened. Yep. Post-broken back... How is your motivation for riding and your motivation for riding fast and hard and taking chances? The second part of that, the riding fast and hard and taking chances, that definitely takes more time, especially like coming off an injury like that where I yeah, I fractured T10 and 11 and have a, a, a metal rod and six screws in there and stuff. So it's like a, it's a serious thing. So, but the crazy thing is that when you do get surgery, it's pretty strong. Like you, it, it was nice to know that it was held together by titanium rods. So that was made it easier for me to get going faster again. Cause I could be like, Oh, I don't think it's going to come apart. They screwed it together. 
But is that what happened to Wolverine? He just had an epic down country ride that went wrong. I think so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we've got to rebuild him. <laughs> yeah, but no, like I think initially I was just excited. Got tire levers coming out of his hands. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, just like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, after any injury, I think the initial part is like you're just excited. Well, for that, I was excited just to be able to walk around the neighborhood because like the level of pain from that was insane, and I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Like it was, that's the gnarliest injury I've ever had, and the most painful. Like. It was so bad. But then once it starts going away, you're like, oh, I feel a little better, feel a little better. Then eventually I was able to start riding. Like I obviously started riding before I was supposed to and would go around the block. And even just that, like being able to ride my town bike around the block felt so amazing that I think it just, it just re not re-motivated me, but I was like, oh, I'm just going to keep getting better so I can ride. But Kaz, we've spent a bit of time together and we've ridden bikes together and talked about a whole wealth of different subjects. You've never mentioned you broke your back. He doesn't. That's pretty gnarly. He doesn't mention anything. Nobody. Yeah. 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 He just I mean, does his thing. I'd be I mean, milking that for all it's worth. Did you not, not hear me about Instagram? <laughs> oh, yeah. boo hoo, poor me. I need a couple years <laughs> off work, everybody. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's like I just like to put it behind me and like keep going forward. I mean, there's probably pros and cons to that approach, but I, I just don't. Injuries, for me, they're more an annoyance than something that's going to alter what I'm doing. And that was a frustrating injury because it wasn't. It was just a weird, like, I just missed time to jump. Like, as a jump I'd done a ton of times at Whistler, just came off and I was like, oh, shit, that's not where the landing is. That's just flat. And it didn't work. Yeah, I don't know. I think for me, it's a, like, I don't know if it's the best thing, but you can kind of, like, compartmentalize an injury and push it aside. Because if you thought about it all the time, I'd probably never ride bikes. Like, because I have been injured a decent amount. Like, riding as much as I do, it does come with the territory. But, um, but yeah, once I did realize, and even, like, my doctor here in town in Bellingham was like, he was a mountain biker, too. So he was able to explain that I could go riding and I'd obviously been riding before that. Cause I think we had a field test in Whistler. So we were there, we were field testing in Whistler. <laughs> and I would go out, I would take the test bike and go around the little gravel paths. And then because he had said I could ride on the road. So I figured that gravel was like the road. And then I found some gravel single track. And then in my mind, that was like a road, but a narrow road. Kaz, I just, I just want to interrupt you for a second. At that field test, you, you literally had a broken back and he never, he never mentioned anything about it. I had a broken ankle would be a stretch it was like a cracked bone in my ankle and i mentioned that like every hour i was like oh my ankle and meanwhile kaz is just like quietly doing his thing someone passed me the tackies i broke my ankle (laughs) (laughs) kaz i think that's a big part of your riding and like your i mean your attitude is just it's very stoic it's very level and i think that is a big factor in just your consistency and how you've been able to do that over the years. Yeah, I think so. And I don't know where that comes from. Maybe some East coast, like just weird new England upbringing. Like I think stoicism is sort of a new England trait in some ways. So maybe some of that's just how I grew up, but um, yeah, it's, it kind of works for me to stay motivated. I think it might, I might have an easier time staying motivated because my moods don't swing super high and super low, which, you know, if you're really excited, you might want to go riding, but if you're feeling kind of down, you might not want to, but since I'm fairly neutral story of my life. (laughs) Yeah. For me, I kind of wake up and like, Oh, I feel like this. Okay. I'll just ride. I think some people wake up thinking I feel depressed. Some people wake up thinking I feel like some muesli, you know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) That's me. I have my bowl of oatmeal and I'll be fine. Like my bagel, my cereal. I I would love some muesli, Henry. (laughs) I feel like you and I would love some muesli. Hey, hey, did you guys um, hear about the man that drowned it, drowned in muesli? He got pulled in by a strong current. <laughs> I'm going to edit that out. That's no, that's acceptable. good. Keep it in. Keep but it no, in. We, we were talking yeah. earlier on about things that inspire me. Stoicism really inspires me. Like, yes. Kaz, you just talk about your journey back from injury. It's far more inspiring to me than hearing 
some about you know seeing something about someone like pushing the limits and doing this and because i think especially because the place i come from which is basically you know i think you don't like about the things you recognize in yourself you know and as i said before like self-indulgence makes me cringe even though that's something i'm very guilty of and so i hear about people just getting on with it and i think that's what i want to be like that's the aspirational state for me you know i think another thing that's important like it is good to mix it up like as as much as i do ride year round i I have skiing as my other outlet so if you know when the weather is super horrible and it's snowing that usually means it's decent conditions to go skiing so it's nice to have a separate Mm -hmm. sport it'd be hard if i only had one single solitary sport i think that would make it harder but it's it's knowing that i can go skiing or i'll go to climbing gym just things to kind of do something a little bit different than what i've been doing for the last 12 months or whatever um yeah so i think that helps and another point is you don't have to ride bikes like there's no this is just an elective thing i mean obviously it's kind of our jobs but you could get different jobs and you wouldn't i think that people get forget that it's unless you're literally unless you're a professional athlete you don't have to ride your bike and even professional athletes could do something else so it's easy to get wrapped up in like we were saying the social media pressure or just the the false pressure that you feel that you have to do this activity but you can just go for a nice walk around the block or whatever and it's fine like nobody so you're not being judged as hard as you think if i don't ride my bike every day my neighbors won't notice and think I'm a piece of shit because yeah. I'm working under the assumption they will. I know they're judging you right now. They're looking at your Strava refreshing, waiting to see how far you rode today and judging you. His but, weekly averages have dropped. Yeah. But yeah, I think once you realize that, and I've always thought in my mind, like I could do something else. Like if for some reason mountain bikes went away, well, I would, I'd figure out an activity that entertained me. I'd become a endurance trail runner or something. But like for now, mountain bikes is the, the most entertaining, engaging thing that I've found. Sarah, do you ever struggle with burnout and a lack of motivation? And if so, do you have a, a strategy to get over that? I definitely used to a lot when I competed in cross-country racing. And so by the time like the last race came around in September and you'd been training since the previous October until like that through the entire season and you know, you're just kind of like trying to maintain your form and peak for the right races throughout the season. By the time you get to September, I just used to like stop riding for a couple weeks maybe a month and just like when you're that's what I learned is like when I'm not excited about riding bikes I just don't ride bikes for a little bit I'll you know go running cross-country skiing you know try something different and then when you're excited to ride bikes again that's when it's time to ride bikes again and um just like trying not to bury myself in a hole and now that I don't race anymore it's a little bit easier to just you know be forgiving with yourself and like you don't need to be on the on the bike and especially like riding a trainer all winter in Quebec was absolutely terrible. <laughs> and so that's my dream. I have like, <laughs> you know, bad memories about, you know, day after day after day, just doing hard interval intervals on a trainer. And so sometimes in the winter, I'm like, I don't need to ride a trainer ever again if I don't want to. So what was your motivation to race? Was it something you enjoyed or are you quite a competitive person? Would you say? It's a great question. I think I, what I enjoy most about racing is just, improving and getting better and I find it hard without some sort of like goal to become that best version of yourself it's like you know you can go out and do a regular ride and I just don't have the same desire to like push myself to like try this drop or uh, you know go faster on this climb unless there's kind of a goal at the end of it so maybe I'm not intrinsically motivated I'm intrinsic and motivated by a goal that's outside of what I can do myself. I used to ride with this guy on the road bike and he only got into road cycling as maybe like a, you know, well into his middle age, right? And the reason he got into road cycling was because 
his daughter was a really good competitive swimmer and she had this other rival like you know in the local race scene this other girl that was really good competitive swimmer and they were always vying it out he was obviously there supporting his daughter and the other girl's father was there supporting her and these dads ended up trash talking each other but kind of really <laughs> subtly yes and it both turned out they both were curious about getting road bikes and he was like, well, I think I'd take to it pretty naturally. And so the guy was like, oh, I think I'd, I'd, I'd take to it too. And so they went about and got road bikes. They ended up becoming fantastic friends. But that's why they got into road cycling, just to trash talk each other. Yeah. <laughs> you got to find your motivation somewhere, don't yeah. you? Yeah. And I always feel really yeah. bad for all the kids that, you know, their their parents are just, you know, not really supporting and coaching them so much as putting a ton of pressure on them when they're kids and they're getting into competition. And I was lucky I didn't have that. It was kind of like, if you enjoy doing this, we'll support you through it. But um, you don't need to do this so it was always kind of an, an elective fun thing that i that i did you were pretty good though eh? i'm sure you're too modest to say but you you were pretty good at the old bicycle racing no well i did pretty well within canada i might my, my claim to fame is that i raced two u23 world cup races and i placed mid-pack in them but i saw i looked at the results like a while ago and I saw that Yolanda Neff won the race so that's my new claim to fame that I placed <laughs> yeah. mid-pack but Yolanda Neff who's now the Olympic champion won the race so like you know it's pretty respectable yeah. <laughs> mid-pack at a world cup race no joke yeah it was U23 world cup I'll coach it with that but after I did that I was like yep I accomplished my goal of racing a world cup and I can move on now I went to school and well, I guess I was what, in what school was it like it, moving but... on what was it like moving away from racing it wasn't easy like it's it becomes so much of your identity right where you're just the person who who you know wakes up early and goes training and you know doesn't party and you know doesn't see people in these hours and you're always going off to the next race and your life is very structured and as soon as you kind of move away from that it's like well like how how do you like I guess kind of like what you were saying like how do you find the the love of the sport without it being kind of a, a routine and so much of a, a job. It was funny because I kind of just rode my bike for fun for a couple of years. And then I was like, hey, this enduro racing thing is kind of fun. So I kind of like found my way back into enduro racing, which was, you know, very different from cross country racing, but it was kind of a different goal. So I was like, why am I still just drawn to racing, even though, you know, I, I did this for so long and I still, you know, enjoy it and come back to it at, like after such a long career cross-country racing and i think for my, racing could be a form of motivation it could like you burned out but it can also motivate you it's kind of nice to have a little goal whether it's a local race or a bigger race like here in town this last summer there were some super low-key wednesday night races that are like 15 dollars, and you get some free hamburgers and hot dogs at the end and it was so much fun to kind of like tip back into the the waters of racing again in a, a low-key environment but you still get that kind of like excitement of doing it so i think that that's a I think the grassroots low-key races can be super fun way to get you stoked to get out, you know, on a weeknight where you might not normally push yourself. Levy, how about you? I know you're you're someone that does get burned out. I know sometimes I'll talk to you and you haven't ridden in a couple of weeks, which always blows my mind, but you also yeah. like to drive cars and take your dog for walks. But what what gets you back on the bike after those periods? Uh, yeah, I mean, what gets me back on the bike? Just me going faster than you? <laughs> that is a motivation. Yeah, I'm definitely a competitive person for sure um well better question what gets you off the bike yeah you know i love bikes so fucking much like it's like giving me all sorts of things it's incredible but i i think sometimes i do bikes so much that i can get burnt out on them and like kaz you're a very level person i'm super jealous that you're like 
I don't know. You just seem like in control of the things. Whereas my mind is definitely more of a roller coaster. So if it works out that like that I'm tired of bikes and I'm at a low point, well then the last thing I want to do is go for a ride because if I go for a ride and it ends up being a bad ride, it's more, it ends up being, honestly, it's more than just a bad ride. Like I get incredibly frustrated and then it's like this cascading thing and I'll find myself eventually being like, I mean, I just want to stay home and, and, and relax, you know? But at the same time, like, you know, Kaz, by June of this year, I had 137 rides in. So I, it's almost like sometimes I don't know how to meter myself. Like mm. I go out and I just, I want to do like all these huge things. And, and, you know, and the reality is, is like life doesn't really work like that, especially when our jobs are also hundred percent bikes, like, all the time and I'm not complaining it's amazing but when you're living in that way I think sometimes you do have to meter yourself and that's something that I'm I'm really bad at and I end up at this like cascading thing and I mean I've never hated bikes like joking aside I don't I've never hated bikes but yeah man there's times when especially now like I'm not super keen 100 percent yeah have you ever considered riding bikes with more than four inches of traveling squamish Maybe <laughs> well that's <laughs> that's a thing too so <laughs> oh, my back hurts, my body's beaten up, I don't enjoy it. Hmm. Do you yeah, just like down country? Is that the problem? Yeah, <laughs> weird. The anxiety is more conducive to riding. When you feel like you've got to ride, for me, that's, I try and remove myself. Like if I don't ride, I don't ride, but it used to be, yeah. I'd feel bad, but then that would stop me riding again in the future. I try and actually yeah. just go as hands off as possible. Yeah, that's exactly it, man. Like I, I feel like a lot of me is tied up in riding. Obviously, like it's, it's the only thing I've done for 20 five 26 27 years and you know it's when I was younger I didn't have a ton of friends I only rode my bike I didn't like go to school that much I only rode my bike and like I I didn't do anything I only rode my bike and now that I'm I've been working at pink bike for 13 years or something as well a lot of is it a lot of myself is tied up in riding so when I'm not riding you know it yeah it feels shitty yeah but do you think that it's just funny because when I when we're at field test, which Sarah sadly you weren't there, so I can't include you. This I only heard the best parts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But the way we all rode bikes, it was it was so funny because it was like represented our personalities. Kaz, you just got stuff done. Yeah. You were going up riding gnarly trails, just like, oh that, yeah, I did that. Oh, was there a gap? And it'd be like there'd be like some like rock to rock feature. <laughs> Oh yeah, I think I did that. And like then, eighty laps in a day, and he just doesn't yeah. tell anybody. I think we did a podcast Levy. about this actually. Maybe we should do another one now that Henry started. <laughs> yeah, Levy, you were like absolutely flat out getting yourselves into some trouble. But I felt like the sort of kind of jovial part of your personality was coming out on the bike a lot. Like you just wanted yeah. to have fun. Yeah. And uh, me, I was boring and miserable and British, but fuck it. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I just potted around and I know what I did. But I thought it was really interesting because I felt, I feel often, oftentimes, either in maybe the duration or the intensity or the, even the, how technical your descents are or how you ride them, they kind of are like, kind of you putting on the table your personality a bit and how you want to be. Yeah. Yeah, you also touched on something else there, though. Riding with people. Mm. You know, and, and obviously that being a big motivating factor. I don't I don't ride with a ton of people. And when I went to field test, I'd been riding a bit, but not a ton leading up to it. And then being around you guys, not you, Casimir, but being around <laughs> Henry and Alicia and Matt. 
<laughs> I found that motivating. You know, like we would go out and I mean, I haven't ridden a ton with you guys. So it was interesting to go out and, and ride and yeah, see something different, have a different conversation. I think that is how it goes for some people where some people do need that extra motivation of a good group of friends that can get them out there. Like I know for myself, I'm pretty internally motivated, so I can usually go out. I don't mind riding solo at all. Like I enjoy riding solo a lot, but I know some people really need someone else to ride with. So if you kind of have trouble finding riding partners, that could decrease your motivation. So it's a, it's a, it can be hard to find good, solid partners, but once you have them, they're important and they can help get you out the door. Do you know who on that field test, I mean, me thinking like what, what my judgment is is obviously worthless, but I was so inspired by Matt and Alicia. They've both got such a great attitude. They're both quite quiet, but my God, they let their riding do the talking. Some of the things they were doing on bikes, I saw Alicia have the gnarliest crash I've I've ever seen. And she just got up like it was nothing. And it was huge. Matt just riding that Canyon Lux with an inch of his life. <laughs> And he's doing, like, those and stuff. And, yeah. It was incredible. But they yeah. are both so... Like, I know we talked about it before, and, like, you know, in relation to how I ride bikes and the amount of shit I talk, etc. But my word, I, I, they, they both, I thought, wow, that's pretty inspiring. I know I've mentioned this before, but having that friend, for me, it would be my buddy Wayne. I know I've mentioned him all the time on the podcast, but, like, those days when it's three Celsius and raining and I don't want to go do a lap... You know, he texts me and he's like, dude, let's go do a double duck farm. It's like, we're going to get wet. Let's go out and let's get it done. And I would do the same thing for him on those days. And also a lot of times, you know, you might need to be, I mean, for me anyway, you need an enemy. Does that ring true for any of you guys? Whether it's like a made up thing or not. But Kaz, I remember a couple of years ago, we did the value field trip in Sedona and that was in the spring, but it was pretty cold and wet here. And I remember we were kind of shit talking each other going to that. But man, I was fucking motivated for that, like to start <laughs> riding harder and like, because I know you're going to be there and I wanted to ride well. And I know we're going to pedal hard. You're in front of me. I know you're going to pedal hard. I'm in front of you. I'm going to pedal hard. Yeah. That's I think important. That, yeah. I don't need enemies like you do, but I do think it's good to ride with people that are a little better than you. And it's interesting because they... I don't think it's that helpful to ride with people that are ridiculously better than you. Like, it's cool to see you ride with some pro or some just wizard on a bike. And like, oh, that's cool. You just did that. But it doesn't really seem as attainable. But then when you ride with somebody that's just that little notch above that you're kind of chasing, but you think you might be able to catch them or might be able to do what they did. I think that can be super helpful, too, because then you can it seems like, oh, maybe I could do that because you did it but I wouldn't normally do that. So I think, yeah, again, it kind of goes back to that picking the right riding partners, but it's really nice to have someone that's just that little bit better, whether that's technically or, phys or like physically, that it's pretty good. Another trick, obviously you need a driver and sometimes that driver needs to change. And for me, it used to be, you know, doing jumps and drops and pushing myself that way. But for the last couple of years, that driver has been more fitness oriented. Um, what about you, Henry? Has has that changed for you over the years as you found that you needed more motivation or does it is it more natural? I would say it feels more like what it should have always been. Uh, yeah. Like I remember when I, I remember when I discovered riding bike I mean, discovered riding bikes like Christopher Columbus. No. <laughs> <laughs> when I well, that's probably that's going to get people angry, but I meant yeah. it by metaphor. <laughs> ah. <laughs> when I found riding bikes for me, I found like. I was like shit man like this is what i've always been looking for like this is just this amazing thing and i can do it because i'm quite an intense person so i was playing team sports and stuff as a teenager or whatever and i was always too intense for everyone else like when i was playing rugby i wanted to play every single day you know 
when I used to play computer games loads and my friends would be like, dude, you play computer games too much. But when I discovered cycling, I could do it as much as I wanted and no one, I didn't have to rely on anyone, you know, mm-hmm. it was just a really liberating thing. And actually like through the years, I probably actually put more and more constraints on my own riding. And that can be superfluous bullshit things like how my bike is X, Y, Z, or it can be more existential things like the way the things we've already talked about. But actually the more that I strip it back and get back to just, it's just actually, it's a liberation, not an entrapment. I find really, really great because something that's funny is now, I mean, I, you know, we're talking, we're talking about mixing up, but I just basically went to the ski shop on Friday. I've got a pass and I was like this, like you guys give me shit for how much it rains in England. Have you been to Canada? Have this you is, been to Canada? To be fair, to be <laughs> fair, we wouldn't, we never have it like this. And you this guys is the wettest it it's ever oh, been in history. that old chestnut, of course it is. You picked the yeah. wrong time That's to come. That's what everyone says. Bullshit, man. Anyway, so I just cracked and I was like, no, nah, I'm going to I'm gonna go skiing. And it was so cool. I went to the ski shop and I just said to the, like the, the sales assistant there, and I just said, can I have some skis? And they were like, yeah. And they started talking. I was like, you, you made the sale. Stop selling. I was like, I'll have those. I was like, I need a helmet. That's not going to make me look like a dork. They're like, oh, this, there's this, Mips. I was like, I don't give a fuck about Mips. Just give me the helmet. That's not going to make me look like a dork. And I got, and it was so nice to not care. And I was just like, I don't, basically, I want my skis to be a bit slippy. And I want my helmet to have ear things to keep me warm. Outside of that, I don't care. And it was liberating, man. It was so good. I wish I didn't care. Like, sometimes I go out and... I don't even want to ride because I'm either maybe I'm riding so poorly or maybe like it's a bad fitness day or something. And I feel like I care so much that it makes me angry that I'm not riding well, that I don't want to ride. You know, it's like this vicious circle sometimes. See, I've got a, I've got a way to get around that. Right. Yeah. This is OK. So because I sometimes care so much and in some ways, like I used to be so obsessive about it can maybe how my bike was set up or. Yeah. X, Y, Z. So now <laughs> I have rules where I have to deliberately do wrong things. So I'm never allowed to wear, it sounds silly, but I'm never allowed to wear any matching brands. Oh. And that is a way to deconstruct that sort of thing. And if I have the choice and I've got a bike with like, say, SRAM cranks and I've got the choice, I've got to put a Shimano derailleur on the bike. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And how to not feed into the bullshit rules that I've constructed over the years Yeah. that don't make any sense and i always try and do that like i always try and run the aftermarket brake pads just so they don't look right and it yeah. helps me basically not take myself obviously taking this rule really seriously but it te- helps me remember henry you're not a sponsored athlete and the ones sponsored athletes always trying to not run sponsored parts you know so why do we willfully fall into the trap of having to be everything perfect it doesn't it should be wrong sorry i like things that work I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to put things that are subpar just because they're a different brand. But it does, if that strategy works for you, more power to you. But I'll stick with the things that I like. But I think there's something to be said about kind of bringing that beginner's mindset back to mountain biking. Because when you're a beginner, you don't care about any of those things. You're just like, this is so cool. I'm going out mountain biking. And then as you get more involved in the sport and the community and you're like, I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to be better. I, I saw this on social media. I got to do this. And then you just have to remember like, and I think also for me, it's like working on one specific skill and, and seeing yourself progress because mountain biking, it can be hard to see your progression through the years after that first initial, like, you know, you get a lot better. And so if you kind of look at one thing or another, it can be cool to see. It's easy to see the regression though, Sarah. <laughs> Damn it. 
but if you or even trying a different sport like i i recently got a trials moto and just like being that beginner again it kind of brings like a new appreciation for mountain biking at the same time or like when i go skiing and i'm trying to get better at that sport it brings a new appreciation to mountain biking as well yeah, I hate sucking at things. That's the problem. That's what. But I don't it's like a beginner's mindset. You, you got to embrace it. You just <laughs> yeah, gotta... I know, I know, it's I actually know. really fun if you once you embrace the beginner's mindset. <laughs> Henry, you touched on something interesting there about using different stuff. I do a similar thing, but with my riding. Sometimes I'll go out and I'm always thinking about like, how do my legs feel? How do my lungs feel? Like, how long is this climb taking me? I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm going slower. Oh no, I'll stop. I just stop, I get off the bike, just wait a few minutes and completely, just so that climb, like I'm, I'm definitely not going to set a calm, I'm nowhere near it, and I could just sort of relax about it. Mm-hmm. I've had to make myself do that like fairly often. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, eh, because intensity or feeling really intensely about things can often be a double-edged sword, right? Yeah. But actually most things are artifice. Like, you, you can do a terrible thing of, you know, what started out often as an aspiration like being good at climbing or like there was a time I remember when I was younger like when I was a teenager I dreamed I dreamed of one day having 105 on my bike like the road group set that was my lofty ambition I was gonna have full 105 and I was gonna have like the not the cheapest bib shorts from fucking wiggle and they were gonna match my jersey and I dreamed of it man like I was and I it was the first time <laughs> look at you now Henry <laughs> but like I thought like because I'd never really have much money and like when I first got into cycling it was like it felt so, so inaccessible, which I'm, a lot of people feel, right? But I took that too far. And I remember probably like, I don't know, being like in the throes of that like eight years ago, like when I was kind of really getting to mountain biking. And like the thought of not having like the same stem and handlebar brand, brand seemed important, you know? Which obviously it isn't. That's the great thing about fucking standards is it all just works, you know? I remember at my worst, like when I thought it was important, like years ago, I was really bad. And now actually... The more I've been exposed to, it's funny, the more we got exposed to actually racing. And like I said, that mostly sponsored riders don't want to w- run their sponsored brands and they want to run the Fox Fork with the Olin Shock, whatever. They don't want to run everything as they have to. And it made me realize like the guys that you think you're trying to replicate are trying to do it the way that you can do it. Like being a consumer is the most liberating feeling. And leave you with your riding, not being a racer is a liberating thing. Not having to go fast, but we due to our aspirations we entrap ourselves and we get so entrenched in these beliefs and so i mean i don't go too far i'm not wearing like one brand of knee pad on my right leg and then one on the other <laughs> two different two different shoes <laughs> clipping in one flat to the other just kind of keep it <laughs> but if ever when i was younger i used to go out and i was looking looking like pro you can't see the inverted commas i'm doing it but now i think you pillock you look like an idiot like you're not why are you wearing a uniform why are you opting into this? Like, opt out, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that helps, for me anyway. I, I sound really silly. I know I do, but fuck it. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. We all do. I think another, this isn't exactly tied with what you're going on, Henry, but what Levy said before is how you've been mixing up with gravel riding. I think just mixing up bikes in general, like you don't always have to be, you know, you might think you're you're an enduro racer. You always have to do enduro racy things, but you can like grab a dirt jumper and go to pump track or hit some dirt jumps or, you know, especially when it's winter time and the daylight's short, you don't need to go on these epic huge rides just like little bits just to kind of get you excited and just a little taste of biking is fun you don't always have to like binge i think mm-hmm. but yeah i know i like to especially this time of year if there's like an indoor dirt jump park across the border that's pretty fun to go to it's nice to just do something different it's it's funny hey how we we all know for some reason that rain's bad 
I don't know why it's bad, but we've all just agreed. Like, nothing in the world could exist without rain, but we all hate it. It's weird. <laughs> when I was um, really into my road cycling living in New Zealand, being a small island in the middle of the ocean, the crosswinds there are, are terrible. And I hated it, man. I hated the crosswind. It got me so pissed off, knowing that I was going to get battered about. And one day I said, I'm going to learn going to learn to love headwinds. And so I used to go headwind hunting for about six months. Whichever <laughs> way the headwind was, I made sure to ride horrible. it. And eventually <laughs> I'd be worst. like... But after about a month, I'd be like, yes, it's headwind today. Yeah, woo, I can't wait to go. Get it. And I'm trying to bring that to wet weather riding. But the results have been mixed because it's still a big climb down I've got to do. But when it rains outside, I'm like, yes, lucky me. I get to go ride in that. And I'm trying to change my attitude because there's no reason why. I'm not made of sugar. Like It's going to be fine. Yeah, I like that. Can you give me some of that attitude, Henry? It's a good attitude. I, I haven't got enough of it for me yet. He's <laughs> <laughs> working yeah, on you can cultivating <laughs> All right, we're not getting out of here without talking about one more super important thing about motivation and burnout. We mentioned it a couple times already in passing, but sometimes you just need a goddamn break, you know? You may feel great mentally, you may have no injuries and feel like you're ready to shred, but you still don't want to. And that could just be your body telling you you got to take a chill pill for a few days or more just to take some time away from riding. I think me personally, this is something that's taken me I mean, 25 years of riding it to understand. And as, as you guys can tell from what I've said earlier, I don't even fully understand it yet. I still like in my head, I don't realize that resting can also be training. It's also good for you and what you need to stay motivated. So you're not being lazy. Sometimes you just got to take some damn time off the bike. Interestingly, that Greg Menard interview, I know I keep bringing it up, Podcast 86, everybody. He talked a lot about how little he rides sometimes throughout the year and how that's been a huge factor in staying so fast for so long. I think a lot of the World Cup guys ride a lot less than you'd imagine. Yeah. And I think like Lewis Hamilton doesn't even do sim work anymore. So I talk about Formula One. He doesn't even go in the sim. You know? It's F1 and time, everybody. <laughs> We're going to have bikes. <laughs> after Crankworks, I was showing some um, some friends around one of whom was a very, very good World Cup rider. And he just said, I can't believe I'm ri- I don't want to ride bike. Like, I'm riding because it's squamish and I'm only here for a day. But I cannot wait to go home and not ride bikes. And that is a thought as an amateur who basically just spends his time, like, you know, casing jumps and dragging brakes in the woods. That's really alien to me. Yeah. But why is it? Take some time off. Like, be- go easy on yourself. Dude, I've had massive arguments with previous partners years ago about like, you know, they wanted to go away for a holiday for a couple of weeks. And in my mind, like, I'm just like some kid. My career as a average rider who falls off skinnies will suffer. <laughs> yeah, it's it's nothing like that. Go do your fun shit. You know, I'm not going to go to Barbados and you can't make me. <laughs> All right, Pinkers, that is it for episode 90-something about losing motivation, finding motivation, and fighting that dreaded burnout. Hopefully we said something that helps someone out there dealing with that stuff, but let us know what your strategies are for staying stoked in the comment section. So we've got a bunch of podcasts in the works for the coming weeks, including chatting with some of the contestants from the PB Academy series about their time on the show. And we also have our upcoming predictions podcast where Casimir is really going to go out on a limb and guess that we might see more 29ers and e-bikes next year. I'll make sure to balance that out with some dumbass ones that won't ever come true. So stay tuned for that next week. And as always, give us a good rating. If you liked what you heard, share it on all your social And we'll see you next week with our crystal balls.